Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and podcast on Radio Free Nashville, 107.1 and 103.7, and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. I think what's like more insidious about the laws is that um, the way that they're framed makes them almost sound good. Um, those the first few of the um, the points that you're not allowed to teach are about like not teaching that groups are inherently better than others, um, things like that. But but what they mean by that is that you're not allowed to say that privilege exists, um, that you're not allowed to say that implicit bias exists. So that's where they actually are harmful. That was a Tennessee teacher, and she will join friend of the show, Timothy Hughes, as we discuss critical race theory. But first, my name is Jim Wolgamuth, and I'm here with fellow Vietnam veteran Harvey Bennett. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Just go to veteransforpeace.org. This show is on stations across the country, thanks to the Pacifica Radio Network. We are also on SoundCloud, Anchor Podcast, Spotify, and on your phone. Just go to your podcast app and search Veterans for Peace. The Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by the Green Party of Tennessee, bringing some common sense into the bipolar world of American politics. Go to greenpartyoftennessee.org. Today, as we continue to celebrate and honor Black History Month, we have two special guests, and we are going to discuss the controversy around critical race theory. First, we have friend of the show, Timothy Hughes. He's on again after he was just here two weeks ago discussing Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail. We also have a teacher from Tennessee who will remain anonymous because of the nature of the subject and the controversy that swirls around it. So, but first, what is critical race theory? I have a quick clip from CNN. Here it is. Tonight, teaching the truth is not radical or wrong. That was the message today from the president of one of the largest teachers unions in the United States who are fighting back as Republican leaders in several states try to restrict how teachers teach racism in the classroom. Ellie Reeve is out front. There are thousands of parents all over the U.S. of all races who have been speaking out against CRT, and rightfully so. These are my babies, not yours. If you are embarrassed or ashamed of your skin color, that's your issue, not mine nor my children. This is a school board meeting in a suburb of Philadelphia, where a small group of very vocal parents are speaking out against critical race theory, or CRT. We do not want our children to be taught that America is systemically racist. 600,000 people died in the Civil War to end racism and slavery. Don't rewrite factual history or indoctrinate, just present the facts. In the wake of protests of the murder of George Floyd, Republican politicians have been hyping critical race theory as a threat to the impressionable minds of America's children. Critical race theory says every white person is a racist. Critical race theory says America is fundamentally racist and irredeemably racist. In more than 12 states, legislators have proposed bills to ban CRT. We wanted to meet the actual people working with actual kids in actual schools. So we talked to Keziah Ridgway, who teaches high school African-American history and discusses CRT in her anthropology class. Can I just start with a very simple, what is critical race theory? Yes. Critical race theory is not being taught in schools. It is a theory, it is a lens by which to view history and the way that law and race kind of overlaps and connects in society. Can it influence the way that some teachers teach? Uh, yeah, but that's a good thing, right? Because race 
and racism is literally the building box of this country. So how can you not talk about it? Critical race theory is an academic framework that says racial inequality is perpetuated by the racism embedded in America's laws, not by individual bigotry. But relentless propaganda from some conservatives has created a panic that white people, and especially white children, are under attack. It's not critical race theory, it's racism. These are systemic things. Ignoring it perpetuates the problem. By acknowledging it, we can find solutions and we can address the problems and the inequality that exists in our country. And so I think teaching it this way actually does the opposite of what these people say it does. Are you teaching children to hate America? No, I'm teaching children to question America. And that's what makes a good patriot. We're talking about something entirely different now. This is my taxpayer's money. I don't want it to go to indoctrinate kids that then are gonna hate my kids because of the color of their skin and attack them because of the color of the skin. What happened in the summer, it twisted the minds of all kids. My kids can be attacked by Antifa kids or BLM kids that are not black. They are white like my kids, but they are believing they were indoctrinated and they internalized this philosophy. Were your children beat up by Antifa kids? I beg your pardon? Were your children beat up by Antifa kids? I'm talking, it's gonna happen if we're not gonna stop it, but we are gonna stop it. Anti-CRT propaganda is drawing big crowds. Of course I'm against critical race theory. More than 100 people showed up at this diner near Baltimore where local Republican groups held a panel on school COVID shutdowns and CRT. What is critical race theory? Uh, critical race theory is the idea that's taught to uh, our nation's youth that the way that you're born uh, contributes to the amount of success that you can achieve in this country. It basically states that white people are born with everything, and if you're not white, you're born with nothing. Can you name any critical race theory scholars? Probably not. Can you name any critical race theory concepts? I, I don't know what the concepts are. I, I think I, I think I, I think I summarized critical race theory as a whole pretty well. Are you teaching white kids to hate themselves for being white? No. Are you teaching black kids that there's nothing they can do to improve their situation? Absolutely because not. There's racism and they can never fight it, so they should give up. Absolutely not. I'm creating little free thinkers and future politicians and lawyers and teachers and change makers. Our kids are smart. They know what's happening. And I think we do them a disservice by continuing to pretend like critical race theory is the issue when it's really you just don't want kids to learn the truth. Because not only do they become critical thinkers, they also become voters. And that is what's scaring a lot of these people because they know that as this generation gets older, a lot of these people that are making these laws will be voted out of office. So there's so much going on there, but Harvey, you, you had a definition from Wikipedia? Critical race theory is a cross-disciplinary intellectual and social movement of civil rights scholars and activists who seek to examine the intersection of race and law in the United States and to challenge mainstream liberal American approaches to racial justice. The word critical in its name is an academic term referring to critical thinking, critical theory, such as literary criticism, that sort of thing, 
uh, scholarly rather than criticizing as in blaming. It first arose in the 1970s, <clears throat> uh, like other uh, quote unquote critical schools of thought, such as critical legal studies. Timothy, I know you've been studying um, CRT. What would you be able to add with regard to helping us understand what CRT is? And then we'll talk about what Tennessee has done and then get our teacher friend in and how it is impacting her in the classroom. Tim, thank you so much for, uh, mm -hmm. first for hosting this conversation. Uh, I'm really excited to have it. Uh, and I think it's critically important for a few different reasons, but I, I, I wanna go back to something that was mentioned or that I'd like to uh, kind of uplift from the, uh, the conversation and the discussion that happened in the CNN uh, um, uh, clip. There was an individual who was being uh, interviewed uh, who is critical of the ways in which history is being taught, uh, has a concern about uh, the possibility of her children uh, possibly being uh, made vulnerable or attacked as a result of, I think in her words, Antifa kids and BLM kids potentially targeting her children uh, because of what they are hearing and learning about uh, in, in, uh, as it relates to the history courses and other courses that, that her children are exposed to in public school. And so she removed them from that environment so that she could have more control over how those students are being taught and the information that they're being uh, given. And what I think was concerning for me in that clip and in that particular moment is that not only could this parent not recognize or understand uh, that these kinds of concepts, particularly critical race theory as a discipline, which is reserved primarily for uh, legal academic scholarship on the graduate level, uh, so not only is that that kind of coursework not being taught in her her children's school in all likelihood, but also the fact that she's being manipulated um, by um, by a conservative movement and elements in the media that are telling her that her children are being endangered by Antifa kids and BLM kids who are seeking to do harm to her children is I think very tantamount and, and very much representative of the kinds of misinformation that are being floated, not only about critical race theory, but about the ways in which we envision uh, America's history more broadly and more generally. There are even efforts being made presently uh, in Tennessee and in other states to try to opt students out of learning about black history during Black History Month for fear that they might be indoctrinated in some way. And we're talking literally about the, the, the contributions of black people to America's history. We're talking about celebrating and honoring the legacy of proud black Americans in a variety of different fields and backgrounds. Parents are so afraid of having their children indoctrinated with some sort of agenda that they refuse to even honor and celebrate the legacy of prominent black Americans for fear that that somehow is a representation that would make them feel uncomfortable or somehow devalue them as human beings. So we're in a moment right now where there's this hysteria, there's this panic, uh, and many of the people who were even interviewed in that clip have absolutely no idea what critical race theory is. They simply know that it's dangerous. 
because they heard something on some uh, conservative radio talk show or maybe some conservative network that told them that they should be afraid of it, that it somehow is anti-American to be critical uh, of or to look with a critical lens at the legal system, at the criminal justice system, as at America's history, because by examining those things that make us uncomfortable, we somehow put children at risk and them psychologically uh, at risk for, for being um, taken advantage of or manipulated. The sad thing about that is that we are now in a moment where, uh, as we were talking about earlier in our conversation, folks are not learning the lessons of history and are therefore repeating the failures of history. We talk about um, uh, the, the contributions of African-Americans to history. I want students to learn about the, the example and the legacy of John Lewis and Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks and, and Ruby Bridges who uh, uh, desegregated uh, public schools. But if we're not talking about that history and we see that, that schools in many instances are being resegregated and we're not talking about ancient history. Ruby Bridges is in her mid to late 60s. We're, not, we're talking about a person who is alive today and who lived through an era in America's history that was deeply, deeply sad and that we should not return to. But if we are not telling the truth about how that happened, the, the idea or the possibility that it may reoccur is very, very real. And so um, CRT is, is a part of the discussion, uh, but I think this is a larger discussion about whether or not we are prepared to cope with and tell the truth about America's history writ large. And I think that if we want to have a better and more educated populace, if we want citizens and community members to be uh, better aware, not only of the, 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 the things that we should celebrate and honor about our history, but also the areas where we, we can improve and should be moving forward, uh, then we, we do ourselves a disservice if we're not investigating critically uh, the history of our country and how uh, the story is told. So uh, I'll stop there. It's interesting that you brought up Ruby Bridges because um, I teach high school history, um, but I am definitely like aware of some of the issues that are happening for elementary and middle school teachers. And um, there's a specific fight against a book written written by Ruby Bridges about her experience as a child. Um, that is part of a curriculum that some districts in the state of Tennessee have adopted for elementary school. And uh, that particular book, the one by Ruby Bridges, is one of the ones that um, parent groups are trying to get removed from schools. Um, I think Williamson County has agreed to remove it from their curriculum. I don't think um, Metro National Public Schools have, but I know it's a book that has been criticized in MNPS. So I, those same parent groups are fighting against it here. And it's just interesting because um, so many families that attend Williamson County schools live there because of white flight. And uh, Metro National Public Schools are still currently segregated. So it's just interesting that a book about ending segregation written by someone who did that as a child is being fought against in a place where segregation is still such an issue in our schools. Throughout the state of Tennessee, there are efforts being made uh, to ban books, books that are seen as objectionable, uh, primarily because their subject matter is about the ways in which we uh, should demand accountability from elected officials and from uh, institutions and organizations and groups that claim to represent uh, the vast majority of our perspectives, but instead uh, are, in, are, are attempting to rewrite and in many ways to whitewash 
America's history in, in such a way that diminishes the quality of education for students. We have, we have efforts being made to stop uh, uh, students from learning about the Holocaust. Like, I mean, why would we want to stop mm -hmm. in a moment where fascism is rising all over the world and where there are efforts being made uh, to push a, an agenda that is deeply xenophobic and, and, um, and anti-intellectual uh, uh, and uh, to push forward an, a, a messaging and a, and a perspective that attempts to dehumanize vast segments of our population, we're now in, uh, in a fight, in a struggle to even be able to tell the story of some of the more unsavory and, and in many ways, uh, the, the, mm -hmm. the very dangerous elements of America's and the world's history. And, and they're doing it under the guise that they are protecting our children. It seems to me that what we should be doing and where we should be encouraging students to grow and to learn and to explore uh, in elementary and middle and high school, uh, and even in college uh, where, where there are efforts being made to uh, criminalize the effort to teach actual and real history uh, at the college level uh, out of a fear that somehow that would lead to indoctrination. Instead, what we're encouraging folks to do is not to learn about the ways in which we can avoid or, or recover from some of the more uh, dangerous uh, and, and more nefarious elements of our history. And that doesn't do us a service as Americans. It doesn't do us a service as, as uh, citizens of the world. It doesn't make for a better and more educated populace, and it allows for folks to misunderstand and to misread the current moment in which we now reside, because many of the gains that were made in the 1960s, things like the, the Civil Rights and the Voting Rights Acts of 1964 and 65, a lot of those efforts uh, have been made to undermine some of those very important and significant uh, political wins. And so uh, when, the, when the, uh, the person in the clip from CNN was saying, you know, the, the thing that's very dangerous uh, and very difficult for a lot of these folks who oppose the telling of, of real and actual and unvarnished stories about our history, what they're seeking to do is not just to impact the curricula and the learning of students, but to impact the future perspectives and ideologies of voters. And that's really what this is all about. It's about pushing a narrative and a perspective that does not allow future voters, potential voters in the future, to have information that allows them to think critically, not only about our history, but about our democracy. Well, what I wanna do is I wanna give the audience just a taste of what Tennessee has done, because the, the clip said that there was over 12. Well, now there's over 23 states who have either initiated legislation or passed legislation. Tennessee was one of the first ones to pass and its legislation prohibits, prohibits 14, 14 tenants, 14 bullets, whatever. And I just wanna quickly go over them. Number one, one race or sex is inherently superior to another race or sex. Two, by an individual by virtue of the individual's race or sex is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or subconsciously. Three, an individual should be discriminated against or receive adverse treatment because of the individual's race or sex. Number four, an individual's moral character is determined by the individual's race or sex. Now, these are all things that uh, are prohibited in schools. 
So number five, an individual by virtue of the individual's race or sex bears responsibility for actions committed in the past by other members of that same race or sex. And number six, an individual should feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or another form of psychological stress solely because of the individual's race or sex. Number seven, a meritocracy is inherently racist or sexist or designed by a particular race or sex to oppress members of another race or sex. Number eight, the state or, or the United States is fundamentally or irredeemably racist or sexist. Number nine, promoting or advocating the violent overthrow of the United States, uh, January 6th. Um, number 10, promoting division between or resentment of a race, sex, religion, creed, nonviolent political affiliation, social class, or class of people. Number 11, ascribing character, traits, values, moral or ethical codes, privileges or belief to a race or sex or to an individual because of the individual's race or sex. Number 12, the rule of law does not exist but instead is a series of power relationships and struggles among racial or other groups. Number 13, all Americans are not created equal and are not endowed by their creator um, with certain unalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the last one, the last one that is prohibited, because all of those are listed as being prohibited to be taught or discussed. Governments should deny any person with the government's jurisdiction uh, the equal protection of the law. So this is where I want to bring in our teacher but first, um, and asked how she would address teaching or particular subjects. But I just want to play something and then let our, our, our teacher friend um, explain if she could do this or to discuss this in class. Because everything has a backstory. Everything. Here it is. Today. I have stood where once Jefferson Davis stood and took an oath to my people. It is very appropriate that from this cradle of the Confederacy, this very heart of the great Anglo-Saxon Southland, that today we sound the drum for freedom as have our generation of forebears before us done time and again down through history. Let us rise to the call of freedom-loving blood that is in us and send our answer to the tyranny that clanks its chains upon the South in the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth. I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. <laughs> That particular audio has been going around TikTok lately. Um, I, ironically, not people saying yay segregation, people like critiquing that audio. And so I've had students bring that up in a lot of my classes in the last few weeks, specifically asking me about that speech. Yeah, I mean, so how, how does a teacher teach that portion of history? How does a teacher take that primary, that primary recording, that primary source, and do that without 
without risking, without risking violating, oh, I don't know, the first four of these things that the Tennessee uh, uh, legislature and the governor just passed. How do you do that as a teacher and not violate? Yeah, so I will I will start by saying that like that's not even the part of the law that I'm worried about because I think it's really easy to be able to just be like, oh, it's a, it's a primary source, especially because I teach 16, 17, 18 year olds. If I taught younger students, I think parents do get really, when I taught eighth grade, I was very careful about the primary sources I chose because you don't want to harm those younger students. But like my students are old enough that I can have that conversation with them. And then if someone complained, I could be like, they need to read primary sources. This is a history class that's in my standards is to teach primary sources. Um, I think what's like more insidious about the laws is that um, the way that they're framed makes them almost sound good. Um, those, the first few of the, um, the points that you're not allowed to teach are about like not teaching that groups are inherently better than others, um, things like that. But, but what they mean by that is that you're not allowed to say that privilege exists. Um, that you're not allowed to say that implicit bias exists. So that's where they actually are harmful. Um, the other way that I think that they're kind of like insidiously harmful is that um, the way the guidance that the State Department of Education put out for how the law will be enforced, I would not individually be punished for breaking this law. My school would lose funding. Um, and so the majority of teachers, most of us care about our kids and we don't want to see our schools get even more underfunded than they already are, especially in a district like the one I teach in that is constantly under attack by the state. Um, so that's what that's what I think is like the, the hardest thing about them is that on the surface, I think most people would read that and say, yeah, that is a good thing. Um, when actually it's not <laughs> and that it, it's it, they would punish whole districts. Mm -hmm. for nothing. Um, so I just wanted to say that, but I also think that most people, I mean, we heard in, in the interviews earlier, most people don't even know what critical race theory is. Um, right. But I think most people don't know what the public standards for education are. Um, I, I don't know, like, I don't know if people who've been out of school for a while know that like I have standards that I have to teach that, that then students are tested on at the end of the year in an end of course exam that the state gives. And my standards include a lot of stuff that I think the anti-CRT crowd would not want students to learn. Like when I taught eighth grade, the first half of US history, they learn about the Three-Fifths Compromise. That's in those standards. They learn that slavery is the cause of the Civil War. That's in the standards. That's what our state has said that we have to teach. Uh, and when I teach high school, like Jim Crow is in my standards. The creation of the KKK is in my standards. The Native American boarding schools, Japanese internment camps. like. The, the Southern resistance to the civil rights movement. Those are all literally like in my standards and students could be tested on by the state. I have to teach those things. So if somebody complained, I can literally point back to my standards and say, well, this is what the state has told me I have to teach actually. Mm -hmm. It's funny that people are like, oh, kids shouldn't learn that. It's like, actually the state decided they have to. So if you're really mad, that's your target, not the teacher. So do you think the state Department of Education is going to just play mum and not 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 consider the this new legislation, or are they going to have to try and adjust the standards? I mean, it 
They're not going to rewrite the standards. They just rewrote them a few years ago. That'd be a huge waste of their time and money. They're not going to rewrite the standards, especially not because the tests already exist. And testing companies kind of own our state Department of Education and many of our legislators. Mm -hmm. So you're not real worried about the issue? I am not worried in my district, exactly. Like my Board of Education has put out statements saying that they will protect their teachers who choose to keep teaching the truth. And I, I teach at a majority black school. A large chunk of my US history class is black history, um, partially because that's in my standards, partially because I think it's important, and partially because to get my students off their phones or awake in class, I have to make class interesting for them. <laughs> very good, very good. Um, I don't know how many people spend a lot of time with teenagers. They're actually making my job easier because the kids are now like, ooh, this is illegal to teach you about. Now we definitely want to talk about it. That's right. Very good. You're listening to friend of the show, Timothy Hughes, and a teacher from Tennessee concerning critical race theory. I see this, this idea that we're going to hurt our white students. They're going to feel bad about themselves. I think that is so much BS. I think they're, I just think they're anxious to hear the truth and find out the truth and have teachers, have teachers treat them with respect enough to convey the truth to them. What, what do you think? Oh, yeah, they, especially because I teach older students, they hate being treated like they can't handle things. Um, I like, I, we do a lot of uncomfortable stuff in my class. Um, and we talk a lot about how do we take care of each other when we learn about uncomfortable things. Um, and that's for all of my students. Like, I actually think um, what is not being talked about enough is that history is often taught in a way that really harms black and brown students, not just because of whitewashing, but because um, the stories that get told are usually slavery and then Jim Crow. Um, mm -hmm. And so a lot of our students don't ever get to see stories of themselves, people who look like them uh, reclaiming power. Um, outside of like the civil rights movement and a lot of like the primary sources that often get taught in history classes are depicting violence towards people of color. Um, mm. Don't think we should hide those things. I definitely don't. I definitely include those things in my classes, but I also think you have to balance them with like um, stories of like thriving and creation and resistance. Um, so when I say we need to be sensitive about the primary sources we use, it's not because I'm worried about making students uncomfortable. I definitely, I think studying history should make you uncomfortable. We've done horrible things. It's more about, I don't want to like further traumatize my students who are already marginalized by the education system. Oh, good point. Yeah, very good point. Yeah, I had a whole list of things like, how do you teach Columbus? How do you teach Nat Turner, Denmark Vesey, Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman? How do you teach the Civil War and it's linked to slavery? How do you teach Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner? How do you teach the four little girls in Birmingham? Or mm -hmm. Dr. King versus George Wallace? Or, or redlining? That's new. That's recent. How do you teach redlining? Jim Crow, the Sam Creek. Huh? The war on drugs. The war on drugs. COINTELPRO. I mean, all, all of these That things. one's not in my standards, and I do it anyway. Nice. <laughs> good good for you good for you um, I think it's, incarceration 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's important that like one, a lot of those things are in the standards. And so teachers who are scared always have the safety of pointing at our standards and saying, I have to teach this actually. <laughs> the other thing Good. is that like the primary source record supports all of those things. The primary source record shows clearly that the Civil War was fought over slavery, for example, or yeah. you know, the clear like primary source record during the civil rights movement of like white governors resisting civil rights gains. Um, though there's, there's primary sources of, you know, Nixon intentionally started the war on drugs to target anti-war activists and black folks. Like that's, those are all proven by the primary source record. And so one of my history standards, um, at the, the, if you look up the Tennessee state standards at the top of each grade level, there's a series of standards called the social studies practice standards. Those are skill-based standards because I'm not just trying to teach them facts. I'm trying to teach them how to be historians. And so my standards include analyzing primary sources, uh, connecting the past to modern events, drawing connections across time, looking at how events, um, how the way we view events has changed over time. So thinking about Columbus, how most people now, I don't think have a positive view of Columbus. Um, a lot of my kids come to me already having heard a lot of that stuff, especially on like social media. So how is that a perspective of him changed over time? That's, a, I can tie that to my social studies practice standards. Like, is I'm, lynching included in the uh, standards to be taught? Is what? Lynching. Yes, yes. Um, lynching, uh, if I remember right, Emmett Till is in the standards, but I have to go back and look. Um, but Ida B. Wells is in the standards under the Muckraker standards, and a lot of her work was anti-lynching. Right. So I, I think, like, it's important to remember that, you know, if, if people can accuse me of indoctrination, um, they don't usually, but if they wanted to, I would say like most of what I do is I put information in front of my students and I ask them to draw conclusions. And the state law, it limits what I can say. It doesn't limit what my students can say to each other. Very good. I, I knew I knew a good teacher would find a way, find a way to make this happen. I did. I participated in um, a lot of teachers in MNPS um, participated in the week of Black Lives Matter in schools, which kicks off Black History Month every year. That's like a national event. And the, the teachers union here has a um, racial and social justice committee that put out a lot of resources for teachers who wanted to participate in that event. And I did it in my classes. And it wasn't me, though, I, the number of BLM stickers on my computer probably give away my personal stances. <laughs> It wasn't me standing at the front of my room and telling my students, here's why this issue matters and here's what I think. I would like show them a video and then I would just say, what do y'all think? And then they would just have a class discussion. Like that's what we're doing. It's, it's not me telling my students what to think. I have students who disagree with me and that's fine. I welcome that. Mm -hmm. I hope they feel like I have a classroom culture that they don't have to agree with me all the time. Um, and they shouldn't. I tell them from day one that I'm also a historian and every historian is biased. So of course I have bias. Oh, nice. You admit your own bias. I, you know, I, I told, I? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. I mean, I, I told the kids that I have a motive as far as what anybody who's saying anything has that motive. So look behind it, look behind it. That's, that leads you to critical thinking, but speaking of motive, source work, I ask them, look yeah. at the author that we're reading, who is their audience and what is their purpose? They should do the same thing for me. They <coughs> My audience, what is my purpose? Exactly. 
Timothy, what's the what's the motivation for this legislation? I think a lot of it is really being shaped by an effort to push an agenda that undermines the uh, the ability to critically analyze America and the world's history, uh, and the place in which America resides in that history. Uh, but I do think that the uh, the larger agenda that is as really more insidious, in my view, that's not really about protecting children but really is about indoctrinating them, is really an effort to try to keep people away from information that might make, uh, might challenge them to, uh, to, to better explore or even to investigate America's history in roots, particularly as it relates to things like human exploitation, white supremacist ideology, uh, the, the dehumanization and exploitation of human beings that can continues to this very day in systems like capitalism, for example. So when that kind of questioning begins to occur and folks are confronted with those questions, a lot of the uh, systems and structures and status quo entities that really benefit from folks not seeing that the wool has been pulled over their eyes are very concerned about that potentially leading to rebellion or pushback uh, efforts at demanding greater accountability and possibly uh, turning the tide as it relates to elections, because elections are really about the acquisition of money and power. So I think it's really about the desire to keep the masses of American children, uh, particularly even uh, those who are, are, are the most likely to be vulnerable, who are in public school systems that are often underfunded, keeping them uh, in a situation where they don't have the information or as much access to the information that they need to both learn about history, but also about the present, then it makes it easier to control that populace, to, to manipulate and to exploit them. Uh, and I think that there is there uh, there are folks who have a concerted effort in making sure that that exploitation, dehumanization, uh, and, and the ways in which we are manipulated continues. Uh, and they use the, the media, they use uh, uh, storytelling, they use narrative uh, as a way of furthering that agenda and that effort. And, uh, and, and those of us who are, are trying to demand a greater accountability and, and a, a better understanding, both of our history, but also of our present moment and what is possible in the future, are, are seeking to, to create an environment where, where you know, America's documents and understandings are as good as the promise that they seem to hold. Things like the Constitution, for example, didn't always apply to everyone and in many ways are still not really applying to all people fairly. And if we talk about that, that's not a criticism of America so much as it is a criticism of the way in which America is not fulfilling its promise. Why did Tennessee go to the trouble of put, actually putting this, putting this legislation together and having it through, through the General Assembly and the Senate and off to the, um, off to the governor so he could sign it? Not just passing it. And they, they stuck it on the like tail end of a different bill that was unrelated. They snuck it in there. Um, that's important to remember because our the Tennessee legislature loves to sneak things in the middle of the night or into a bill that no one's going to read. Um, sorry, I got that. I got sidetracked. <laughs> uh, I I like the the way Timothy started with that. That um, I think not every parent getting involved in this has ill intention. I, I really don't want this to become like a team teachers versus parents fight, which I'm seeing a lot of people make it into right now. Um, teachers and parents are not enemies, and I don't want to frame us as enemies. Um, but I do think that there are a small group of parents who have louder voices and more access to these spaces where they get to advocate. 
um, because they have the time to go to a meeting in the middle of the workday, or you know, they have the knowledge of who has the power to make those decisions. Um, so I think that there's like a small minority of parents. As, and you look at the parents who are coming to like MNPS board meetings and talking about critical race theory, um, some of them don't even have kids in our district. And oh my. many of them are reading canned talking points from a national group um, that don't even apply to our curriculum here. And so I think it's important to look at like the national groups that are doing this. And you look at some of the people who have, been, who have gone viral in these videos that are like, I'm against critical race theory and here's why. A lot of them are Republican pundits or lobbyists. <laughs> um, and so it's just, it's just very clearly like there are some parents that that are in this for like the you know they're worried about what is age appropriate for their kid or they are worried about like they just want to be more trans want schools to be more transparent with them. I understand that motivation, but I think a lot of it is about power and control. And then parents are who don't have those motivations are like being manipulated by larger groups. Um, the way the media frames it too tends to they want to have everything look like two opposing camps. And uh, so they really uh, exaggerate what you're talking about. Uh, like the, uh, the recent uh, governor's race in Virginia, uh, everyone on the cable channels, it was all, you know, critical race theory is what made the difference and all that. And it turned out that it was really more about the closures of the schools during the pandemic that people mm -hmm. were the angriest about it. <laughs> Absolutely. And notice, the parents they're interviewing in these new segments are almost always white parents. Right, yeah. That's it, and that's not who is always represented in our schools, especially not in no. Tennessee where so many white families have like fled to private or rural schools. Right. right. Yeah, I think right. There's, a, there's a white victimhood. Absolutely is, and we also see the dangers of stoking those fires, right, irresponsibly. So we see that there are there are parents and some folks who are, are being manipulated by that narrative who are showing up at school board meetings and threatening school board officials with violence. We see, mm -hmm. you know, situations like that that have been occurring all over the state and all over the country where folks are, are really targeting school board members, many of whom are doing this because they care about kids, they care about students and what happens in the schools. And so uh, a lot of those folks, as 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 you know, was mentioned earlier, are are being manipulated and taken advantage of by this larger narrative that tries to create these two factions that are fighting against one another. When in actuality, both uh, I believe those folks who are are demanding you know accountability and responsibility and wanting to teach what is age age appropriate to children those folks care about kids they care about what happens in the school system but are, are often being uh, manipulated and, and the fires are being stoked uh, that cause them to be afraid uh, when they're in actuality there are bigger issues about which we should be concerned what well, the funniest part to me is that if you ask most teachers like what are you indoctrinating your students into doing this week it's like remembering to put their names on their papers <laughs> treating their classmates with kindness like that's what we're trying yeah. to kids into. I'm taking my kids up to like a reading level that they shouldn't be at at their age. I'm not I'm trying to brainwash them. That's right. Well, you know, uh, what the lady, one of the ladies on that CNN clip was saying, well, what about if my kids, my kids get beat up by Antifa kids? Now, I didn't know that Antifa had a youth movement, Yeah. but, but uh, <laughs> Antifa or BLM kids and um you know, I've always considered in my past 
I'm in my past. I've always considered when I'm thinking about the past that so many groups of color really should be sitting there so angry at the white power structure that you know if 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 violence does happen then well you know the white pop the white power structure has been asking for it for 400 years uh but with very few exceptions the there is no hint of that in fact the the only hint of violence is actually coming from that white that white supremacist side so and and so i'll go back uh to both of you is there is there any do white people first of all do you think white people are actually scared of their own well-being or do you think some parents are actually scared of antifa kids do you see any of that I, I know a lot know of teenagers. I, None of them are in Antifa. Yeah, I, 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 most of the kids that I know are so anti-group or anti-coal. I mean, I don't know. Do they have like cool T-shirts? I'm just wondering where they even get the idea that there are these marauding groups of young teenagers out looking to try to target people because of critical race theory. It's utterly um, ridiculous. But what is really fascinating to me is that it's also a historical because when you consider the fact that the the stories and the narratives that would be told about America's history, particularly around things like desegregation, the ones those who were most vulnerable to threats of violence and attack were those who were actually on the side of demanding that every human being be treated fairly and that every child have an access have access to a quality education it wasn't the ruby bridges of the world and the john lewis's of the world who were attacking marauding groups they weren't they weren't out marauding and attacking white people they were the ones saying they were the ones who were being attacked who were being threatened with violence and in much the same way that the story the stories around how it is that these issues are our concerns should be addressed it's really not that we are demanding that you know white children somehow uh, deal with the grievances of, of you know poor and aggrieved folks who are marginalized. It's really about just reconciling with what that history means and how it is that we got to the present moment. If we consider the fact that there are people who have been historically marginalized and that the impacts of that historical marginalization have compounded over time and have created environments such that things like abject poverty and uh, environmental racism and systemic oppression and the exploitation of certain humans to benefit other humans is happening if we could just consider the possibility that this didn't just happen that it was it was created it was an environment that was fomented then maybe it empowers people to come together and understand the ways in which we can be empowered to make communities better not to uh, to make us all seem like it's it's impossible for things to change, but to recognize that change is a process and that we all have a role to play in it. So uh, I teach a couple classes and they kind of all have different content I cover and move at different paces throughout the year. And in one of my classes, um, we are wrapping up a unit um, about the 60s and 70s that has been largely focused on the civil rights movement, but also on other like movements for change during that time period. And um, I 
asked them recently about some of the things that surprised them throughout this unit. Um, because I told them from the beginning, I was like, I know y'all are going to think you know everything I'm going to teach you in this unit, and you don't. Um, we're going to we're going to more than Rosa Parks, I promise. And so I asked them, like, what did surprise you? And um, they they were surprised to learn that uh, one that like Rosa Parks did not just randomly decide one day not to get up, that she was part of a movement of people that had been preparing. And so they were surprised that like these major figures that they had heard of were part of a movement, not, al not working alone. They were surprised by that. They were surprised that um, the civil rights activists faced violence from organized white supremacists and from the state. They were surprised by that. Oh my. Surprised that the civil rights movement was not popular. Um, we looked at, there's like a, a political cartoon of a reporter interviewing MLK the day after a like nonviolent protest and the streets are chaos. There's a dead body in the middle of the street and broken glass everywhere. It's very like excessively chaotic violence. It's honestly funny to look at. And then we also looked at data from Pew and Gallup interviewing people at the time. How do you feel about the sit-in movement? How do you feel about these different protests? And how do you feel about the laws that are being passed? So, so they were surprised that people did not actually support the civil rights movement at the time, that it was the majority of Americans did not support the movement, especially the majority of white Americans. Mm -hmm. I asked them, why did that surprise you? Why is that not what you usually hear? And they were like, it's because like people don't want us to know that you have to do things that are unpopular to get change. Um, you have to like, you have to have protests that might be not nonviolent that because they're going to see you as violent anyway. So why constrain? Yeah. Like, we had um, we had read Letter from Birmingham Jail and we had also read The Ballad of the Bullet within a couple of days of each other. And they had they were so like frustrated. They were like, uh, King worked so hard to be like palatable to white people, and they still saw him as violent. So they're like, okay. so why don't we go the Malcolm way? Because they're going to see us that way anyway. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and and that that is so disturbing because um, it shows that the white uh, the white oligarch capitalist society has managed to do a really good job. We we've got we've got everybody figured out and dumbed down to think that the civil rights movement and the voting rights movement and it all worked and it's all happy and it's kumbaya. We can start eroding these things away and nobody's gonna notice and it, it it it's to control the way that we react and try to fight oppression now like it's to try to control modern liberation movements by whitewashing past liberation movements. union history gets the same treatment timothy you, you talked about like investing in communities and i thought you would enjoy hearing that um a, a week ago at time is fake uh, a week or two ago in my in my classes that are learning about the civil rights movement um we read the black panther platform the 10 points mm -hmm. and they loved it. I mean, a few kids were like, well, some of this is pretty radical, but some of the kids were like, yeah, we do need investment in our communities. Like we do need to take everything from the 1% and give it back to our communities. Like they were, they loved it. So I just let you enjoy hearing that. And also in some ways is a reminder of just how much we, uh, we students value the importance of teaching the lessons of history because in the same way that the civil rights movement and the sit-in movement was unpopular, the Black Panther Party was extremely unpopular, unpopular during that period, particularly the fact that they demanded 
uh, that the constitutional right to bear arms not be denied to anyone on the basis of race or creed or color. And so they began to open carry en masse uh, in some uh, of the Black Panther Party chapters, particularly on the West Coast. And it was the first time in recorded, in, at least in modern history, that uh, a group of, of white Republican lawmakers came out against the, the Second Amendment for uh, individuals in, in California and in some of the chapters there of the Black Panther Party because they were incredibly af afraid of, of Black people uh, embracing the Second Amendment and the rights therewith. And so when we hear these historic documents being touted as you know, a framework that is you know, equally shared by all people and that all Americans, of course, have every single right that is delineated in the Constitution and, and, and you know, and have uh, the right to just treatment under law. And then that flies in the face of actual history and documented history. Then we have to question what about uh, America's story and narrative and what about what we've learned in the history that we're being taught is actually true and, and what is, is actually propaganda. Uh, and so uh, to, to, to your point, Jim, um, what, what, are the, what are the risks? The risks associated with you know, not telling the truth about history is that uh, people don't have the full story. They don't get to have the information necessary with which to make uh, interpretation and understanding about that history. Uh, and they assume that things are the way that they are because uh, they, they, they happen spontaneously rather than that there were efforts and elements uh, in history that actually helped to bring about the modern day. Uh, and it also takes away the power that people have to make determination uh, about, you know, what should happen in their lives and in their communities. And if people feel completely disempowered, they rely more on those who seem to be empowered, uh, and then they they give up the power that they have themselves. And so, um, in, in any, in, if anything, we we are creating a, a nation of, of of people who don't have a sense that what they are hoping to accomplish in their own lives and the power that they have in their own hands is sufficient to help them bring about a measure of change. And I think that what that ultimately does is it hurts, uh, it hurts communities, it hurts individuals, uh, it hurts uh, the ways in which we as citizens uh, live out uh, America's uh, legacy and, and are able to really impact the, the evolution and the creation of greater uh, uh, efforts in our democracy. Mm. I have one more thing that I want to get your viewpoint on. We rely on primary sources and the primary sources don't lie. Those words of George Wallace don't lie. The, the, the Nashville Public Library has a wonderful resource in the Civil Rights Room and they, all the recordings. What about if the state says... Um, I don't know if anyone outside of the like Peabody community heard about this, but a few years ago, a student teacher was dismissed from her student teaching placement. Um, because she used a primary source that parents like uh, complained a lot about. Um, and I think there was like a valid conversation about the primary source she used. I, I, I do think, you know, you can, you can ask, is this age appropriate or is, is this an appropriate primary source or is there another one you could have used? But it was really interesting that like, instead of having that as an opportunity to have that conversation, she, a pre-service teacher who's just a, a baby educator was just immediately dismissed. And I think um, her mentor teacher was even put on temporary administrative leave, possibly, if I remember right. This is a few years ago now. Um, that is that is a concern. I hadn't even thought about my primary sources being taken away and what I would do if that happened. Um, I think leave teaching. I think that's the point where I would do something else. Because <laughs> I don't know 
that you can teach history without teaching primary sources, especially because, like I said, it's in my standards that I have to teach them how to read primary sources. Mm -hmm. It's in my standards that I'm teaching them to be historians. Um, yeah, that's well, very thing to think about. One of the things that I, that I do think, and uh, I know that we're, we're drawing to a close in our conversation, but I did want to, as we're, we're talking about these very heavy subjects, kind of focus on something that I think is um, uh, a matter of, of encouraging and, and sort of hopefulness that I have. Uh, because uh, in this conversation, there's been a lot of discussion about the ways in which folks are in oppositional camps and, you know, uh, they're, they're, you know, on one side or the other of different issues. But what I've taken heart in and, and where I feel encouraged is that we are having these discussions and these conversations about um, not what history is, but what history means. And I think that that to me is, is a very important and uh, necessary conversation to have, because if we can agree at the very least on what the facts are, if we can talk about these primary sources and the interpretation of what the primary sources mean in, in, the, in the current day and how we can interpret them, I think that we are doing justice by history. Uh, but as long as we're, we're, we're fighting over whether or not the facts exist and whether, whether or not the facts actually say what they say, I think that we're, we're, we're kind of drowning in a muck that, that can be very frustrating. And so what I'm hopeful about is that as there are all of these uh, increasing discussions about critical race theory and about the ways in which we do instruction about history and literature and banned books, there are opportunities to give students in particular, but I think Americans in general and, and the world at large, an opportunity to explore and to understand critically important parts of our history, of our culture, and things that we should be analyzing and investigating, unearthing and, 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 and rehashing and discussing, because that's how we learn. That's how we discover, and it's how I think we become uh, and create a, a better a better democracy and a better world. And so I hope that we will continue to have those explorations, those discussions, and to sometimes have those uncomfortable confrontations uh, where um, we're able to, 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 to learn and to grow together because I really think that that's not only what tests us as a community and as a, as a populace and as a country and as a nation, as a, as a world, but, but also how we can actually bring about uh, and, and, and be led to the better angels of our nature. Nice. So uh, a, a song. So uh, I don't know, um, we shall overcome is good. So once again, we must leave it there. And again, thanks to Timothy Hughes and thank you to our special guest and special voice from the classroom. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a student in her history class? Now, with all that, do me a favor. Look into CRT. Look into critical race theory. And make your own judgment. Do your research. Find that primary source. Because when we all do that, then we truly can overcome. Have a great week.